0: Welcome back to Making Your Masterpiece. I'm Cameron Zendars, and this is part three of a three-part interview with Rick Warmly as we dissect standards-based grading and look more in depth at this topic. I hope you enjoy this last part of the interview. You had mentioned that you've worked with colleges before and kind of this idea of, you know, how do I help colleges with standards-based grading? I know a lot of the concerns I've heard within my own community as well as just nationally with standards-based grading is how do you take standards-based grading and how we've assessed you this way and how do we give that to colleges and they make sense of it. Um, Is it possible to get rid of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, is it possible to get rid of that method of grading and show them just our students' ability to meet or not meet standards?
1: Well, the mastery transcript is already doing a lot of that. About 12, 13 years ago, maybe 14 years ago, the Carnegie units changed. Carnegie units used to be so many minutes for two weeks or so If you put the seat time in, you got the diploma. You have to have so many minutes of this, so many minutes of this. And it was a Carnegie unit. And Carnegie itself said, no, we have to see proof that you've learned it. Now you're going to be evidence-based, standards-based. Everybody is risen. The critical mass has risen. That The grades better mean what they say. When I work with college admissions officers or professors or researchers at the collegiate level, they're finding so many kids are coming from independent, private charter schools or homeschooling. Well, there is no gpa it's just narrative commentary and they're still getting to school just fine they're finding alternative ways to see if you're a qualified candidate for the freshman class then many schools are saying look we're going to be standards based so we're going to take whatever we do and it might be a four three two one which is actually what they translate a's b's and c's and d's into anyway to get a gpa but we're going to translate whatever it is we're going to do our thing but well' translate it into a mathematical formula if you need one for you to determine whether or not the kid is is there. But the thing that people forget is, in some schools, an A is 95 to 100. Right. The B plus started at 94. In my school district, for decades, it was 94 to 100. But the school district next door was 90 to 100. And people are like, "Oh no. Uh, a in our class is like a B in their school, or a B in our class is like an A to them. Our kids will not have a fair comparison. And every admissions officer said, Slow down, we know what's going on. What we do is we actually compare them and we have our own mathematical calculation. Every one of them has shared with me, and in 2013, there were all kinds of reports on this in Ed Week and USA Today, if you want to go back and look at the articles, that GPAs are meaningless, that they will recalculate the GPA based on the rigor of the courses. So they'll take the classes that are rigorous, AP being one level two, gifted, advanced, honors, IB. And they will recalculate the GPA based on their own determination. And that's an incredibly powerful predictor for future college success. If they don't have that capacity because you're doing narrative commentary or something, they will find other ways, require more letters of attestation, prerequisite exams, other tests, you know, scores that have to be submitted, interviews that will count more. They, they want your tuition money and they do find a way if you have to mathematically do it. One thing I'm very grateful for is that class rank has fallen out of favor yes. in a lot of them. And SATs, which have a very minimal predictive capacity for doing, is not required in the majority of universities. And Illinois has actually led the way in some of that, particularly Chicago area schools. I led the way in some of that and getting rid of it as a requirement. In fact, MIT and many other schools, the freshman year, they don't grade anything. They're saying, stop chasing the grades. Go to class because you're interested. Learn how to be a responsible person living out from underneath the the roof of your parents. Really just do it. By the way, what you learn your freshman year will count in your sophomore year rather dramatically. So you can't skip class and suddenly show up for your sophomore year. You really have to attend. And what they're doing is more pass fail instead of start chasing all the grades and grade grubbing. Yeah. That's MIT doing that. And many, many schools have a school within a large university who are doing that as well. It's all about the learning, not about chasing the grades. And that's just so refreshing and so lovely. It's not the majority of schools by any means, but more and more schools are turning that around. So I think you'll find, and Tom Buckmiller and Matt Townsley out of Iowa they wrote several articles for a state administrator or school administrator magazine. And I have them posted on my website, if you're curious, but several articles where they really worked with admissions officers and said people coming from high schools that are standards-based, does it negate anything? Does it diminish anything? When they go on and apply for colleges and they found over and over repeatedly, no, it doesn't diminish. And in fact, it could enhance because we feel like we can trust the grades to be accurate, mm-hmm. not, Well, they really only earned 80% of it, but they count homework 10% and attendance 10% and all the stuff that isn't indicative of evidence, which would not happen in a standards-based class. So they feel like they really, there's an honesty in that. And I've seen admissions officers admit, we can trust the integrity of grades from that school, but we can't trust it from that school. And frankly, what reputation do you want to have? I hope it's one of integrity.
0: Yeah, I've always thought some of the complaints that people will have towards standards-based grading are kind of ironic because any grading system is going to be flawed because we're human and nothing's perfect. But the irony is that a lot of times people will go after standards-based grading for some of its potential pitfalls like, how you know, how will colleges figure this out? Yet the irony is on the other end, there's pitfalls just as much with the traditional method, even more so with the traditional method of grading, like you mentioned grade grubbing, which I've noticed that often our school community, especially AP students. So one challenge that I've had to adding this course and lessening the amount that they get for homework and things like that, kind of changing the culture of, is students become really frustrated if they're not getting their A or getting their B. And it becomes a game of, are you getting the A that you, know, you need to get to get into college instead of a curiosity for learning? And sometimes that that's really been a frustrating aspect for me as a teacher is students that care more about the grade than they do about, hey, am I growing as a person? Am I growing in my understanding of things? Am I actually getting more college ready? So I think it's great what you mentioned with that. I'll end with uh, this last question. And um, it goes back to kind of full circle to what we talked about earlier, which is that you've been in this 40 years and you've been able to learn a lot of things throughout your time. What would you say has been the biggest evolution of your teaching philosophy, your beliefs, your general just take on education?
1: Oh, and I, I don't know if I can limit it to what's been the biggest one. I can, I can say, you know, one of the, you know, three or four.
0: Yeah, that would be great.
1: Yeah. I think one of the biggest evolutions for me is, you know, I'm quite an extrovert right now. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it may not know, realize that, but I, well, you can tell I talk a lot, <laughs> but I'm an extrovert and extroverts tend to say what I'm doing. The joke I'm telling is the funniest uh everything kind of revolves you know i want to be the center of the room of attention and i realized that i was more teacher centered than i was comfortable being i claimed to be student-centered and i realized it's about the students learning not about me doing the teaching and that was in the 1980s for me and that was very hard and once i did that i was much happier but that was a tough evolution and one of the things that helped me there was that i decided to videotape myself as part of it, We were all analyzing ourselves, and the camera doesn't lie, at least to the level of technology that I possess as special effects, and I was kind of shocked by that. So I started spending a lot more time instead of, you know, I would call on one student, and then I would say whether right or wrong. I would redirect to another student to say, hey, what's your response to that? Do you have a rebuttal? Would you like to add anything to that? And I kept doing that around. And I stopped inserting my opinion, you know, my judgment. And I stopped being the, the sole arbiter of what was really important and what was going on. And I opened things up. The second thing that was a, an evolution that really helped is I started realizing I need to be an expert in the human mind, at least to a minimum degree. I can't just say, oh, well, I think it works. Because <laughs> one of the things I found is a true professional can always explain why he or she does something non-professionals, you very rarely can explain why they do something. And so I really wanted to, to be very professional. And so I spent a considerable amount of time keeping up. And I still do today. What's the latest in cognitive science? Like cognitive load theory is very popular right now. People debate it back and forth and direct instruction versus project-based instruction. and All these different things coming to the forefront. Um, what about empathy? What role does that play? And I want to really keep up with that. And that was just transformative, that I decided that the stakes were high enough and I wanted to be professional enough that I should be able to analyze what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, and its ultimate impact on student learning, rather than say, yeah, I tried it, it didn't work, but that's the kid's fault. So I had to tone up for that, and that that really helped. The other thing that really helped is, and I think was evolutionary for me and transformative, I realize it's what the kids come in having inside them each morning that really has the most impact on the success during that one particular class. So I had to pay way more attention in getting to know the students. Really, I mean, home life, if I can, without being too invasive. But I I could not just assume, oh, they're in 10th grade. They're always like this. Or they're in 5th grade. They're always like that. But with that knowledge, like Spider-Man and Stan Lee, comes responsibility. And it means that I can't just spend all this time getting to know kids and then still go ahead and do what I was gonna do anyway. So you should be able to look at my lesson plans and ask me this, Rick, what do you know about the students you're teaching this day and how has that affected your instructional design? For one, for a subset or for all of them? And then the idea is that I would have a large enough repertoire that I could be flexible in the moment, that I would develop on purpose, even though I might never use it, a versatility. And so I have a larger tool belt, right? I can do different things. So in the spur of the moment, I can offer it rather than, wow, I really wasn't expecting that. I don't know what to do right now. Just read a silent reading book that you're supposed to carry with you on campus. I'll get back to you tomorrow with a little mini, a manila folder with an individualized project, sorry. (laughs) Or go sit over there because I'll make all these other children in the class my lieutenant teachers and they'll do the teaching for me because I didn't have anything planned for that. I decided that I need to get really good into responsive teaching or differentiate instruction in order to pull that off. I think those are really helpful. And then I got excited about technology at first and found myself doing technology that did not advance my principles of effective instruction. Hmm. And so I backed off and I realized every single time there's a new app, New software, new tech, of oh, flex cameras. I love flex cams, man. I was totally into that. Oh, now we can do webinars with famous scientists. I always looked at what's my pedagogy? What yeah. principles of cognitive science am I employing? And could I do it more effectively and faster and more expediently with a simple tra- chalk drawing on the, ch- on the chalkboard or dry erase board? or when I spend 20 or 30 minutes doing this thing over here, I could do so efficiently over here in a few minutes. I always started weighing that instead of doing just the bells and whistles and it improved my effectiveness and I think the kids learning in the class. Those are some of the bigger ones. I'll probably think of a whole bunch just as soon as we finish this interview.
0: Yeah. Those are awesome. It makes me think a lot of what we had talked about earlier with formative assessments. It's like you can do all the formative assessments in the world that you want; and they can be great, but if you're not actually using that as meaningful, you know, yeah. using that for meaningful data and information to change the way that you're doing things, it's really useless. You might as well just throw it in the trash. Agreed. And then the first thing you mentioned uh, reminds me. If we actually, my friend and I that did the last interview, we were talking about how we get kids engaged and. He brought up the book, Teaching with Your Mouth Shut, and how convicting that is to think about being off in the corner, still being involved in your, your kids' learning. I mean, you have to do a lot to have a meaningful discussion in the classroom, but being able to just keep your mouth shut for an entire period is really hard to do, especially, as you mentioned, most of us teachers are extroverts, so that can be really difficult at times.
1: You know, that's, that's an interesting point. I, I developed a ratio, you know, to engage kids, we have to bust them out of their reverie, and all of the things that are competing for their attention. I totally get that. But I realize that I will do 10% of what I do as an unapologetic dog and pony show. I mean, really intense, far out, either comical or science fiction based, whatever it is, to try to bring them into what we're doing. The magic of teaching, that kind of fun, edutainment maybe. Yeah. But 90, 90% of what I do is quiet, behind the scenes facilitation. But, so I think it's okay. You don't have to be Joe or Jane drama, but you have to be willing to bite it up. It might be you co-teach, you know, with a student one day. Or one day you have unusual props Velcroed to your, your, your lab coat, your sweater, your jacket, whatever. And you're going to rip them off and use them at some point in a lecture. You can do simple things like that. But 90% of what you do, the majority of what you do is behind the scenes. So biting your tongue like that and, and staying silent. my grandfather was a rehabilitation counselor or administrator slash counselor for the navajo nation in new mexico and one of the things he would talk about was just sitting quietly that the navajo nation as a whole is very comfortable with silence whereas american society is not comfortable with that we fill things in all the time you know i accompanied him on a few of his you know interactions with them and so he would start things out with things like so what do you know we would sit there for like three minutes with this client and nobody said anything. And I'm this you know, young teenager. I'm, I'm one of, my skin is peeling from my bones. Say something, do something. And eventually the person with whom he was working would kind of go, well, I do have this one thing and I'm struggling with it. I wonder if we might talk. And, and, and we start, we're okay. But if he just said what's okay, what's not. And he, he didn't, honor the person with enough respect to stay silent it never would have been something that was solved you never would have heard or understood and i decided the power of silence well it's very powerful and then i read of course teacher expectations and student achievement research tessa research it said a lot of american teachers wait only about two tenths to two full seconds that's it for silence before they bail kids out or judge them negatively that they're not prepared when they you know, ask a question or something, or before they start processing back, which is not enough time, but is also disrespectful hmm. of the learning process. And when you wait eight, 10, 15 seconds of silence, and the kids know you will give them that time, they usually respond with robust answers, robust responses, and they also feel treated with respect, like you will honor who they are and what they bring to learning's table. So I've always been fascinated by that. and I, I guess I would add that to my other list of really tough things I had to learn along the way.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of cognitive bias that we talk about in psychology, how yes. we very much as in our American society have a bias towards extroverts and oftentimes show almost disdain for introverts that take more time to process, which is you know unfortunate because a good majority of our population are introverted and, and we're really doing a disservice to them as teachers if we're not finding a way to bring them into the classroom. Agreed. Well, Rick, thank you very much for your time. I I can't tell you how much I've appreciated this and honestly just enjoyed talking shop with you and and talking about something that we're both very passionate about. I wanted to throw out there one more time. I know you mentioned it earlier, but rickwarmly.com, absolutely great website to go and check out. I already saw, I was looking at it just the other day, how many articles you post on there. Um, It's something that you seem to keep up pretty frequently with tons of new current event uh, topics in the educational world. Are there any other avenues that you throw out there for my listeners to, to reach you or to, to find what you're doing in the in the education world?
1: Well, Twitter. I love Twitter. I do that a lot. And we have lots of online conversations. They're always welcome to join us. But there is at Rick Warmly, and it was hacked about five years ago. So you can go look at that conversation. It's about four and a half years worth of, of conversation. And Twitter and I, I just couldn't get it back. So I started a new handles they have to know that if they want the live version it's a brand new handle ready i'm so creative ready at rick warmly too so that's it so that those two rick going to do great and if they do see anything on the website or on twitter they're welcome to use it in any way they want there's also you know a lot of books and a lot of articles i've written so they're welcome to look at amazon or barnes and noble or whatever online company they want to use to, to get any of the books and i'd love to talk about any of those things anytime
0: awesome yeah, and I want to throw out one more thing. Just a, a word of encouragement to Rick. This podcast is very small, very new to this whole podcasting thing, and it's for a pretty small project. In which, from a standpoint of like this being something that Rick really gets anything out about outside of just helping me out and and continuing this this conversation, uh, it means a lot to me that Rick, who gets paid to do this for a living, would do something like this out of his own time. And to me, I'm I'm really honestly incredibly grateful. And I think it's a great example to other teachers out there that. We're in a profession that really does require of us to pay it forward, and I think this is just a great example of you, Rick, doing that, and, and I think people can really learn from that, and I, I really do appreciate that, so thank you again.
1: Well, thank you for saying that, but you're, you're giving me an opportunity, too, so I'm, I'm, get, I'm gaining from it. I'm so impressed with your journey and what you're trying to provide with new teachers here, so thank you for all you're doing.
0: This concludes my interview with Rick Warmly. I hope at the very least that this has given you a pause for reflection on your own teaching and how you assess your students. The goal ultimately for all of us as educators is to constantly be reflecting on what we do and how we do it and whether or not it's purposeful or there's avenues or ways that we can improve and change the, what we do. Thank you again for tuning in to Making Your Masterpiece.